Welcome to Comsday Live. I'm Graham Lynch, the founder and CEO of Comsday. Today we feature a special extended interview with Russ Matalich, who is the head of RTI Cable. They're not the biggest name in Australian telecoms, but they are a deeply significant and influential player in Pacific connectivity, linking Australia with Japan and the US via a Guam hub. They are best known in Australia for landing a cable on the Sunshine Coast, and they also have new plans to maybe go to Darwin. More with Russ later in the show. We're also talking this episode with Andrew Branson, the head of Tangerine Telecom. Tangerine are one of the most keenly aggressive service providers in the market. In this past week, they launched a 1,000 gigabyte wireless broadband plan using the Optus 4G network. We'll catch up with Andrew to find out more about this new plan and what else Changerine are doing. But first, we'll chat with Simon Ducks, the chief editor of Comms Day, about some of the highlights in Comms Day this past week. Hello, Simon. How are you? Not too bad, thanks, Graham. Another busy week? Yeah, busy week. You had a great story this week about the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. It's basically arguing that banning high-risk vendors from supplying 5G networks is not enough and that there's a need for a overall risk mitigation strategy and a secure 5G ecosystem. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, it's an interesting one because obviously uh, ASPE are suggesting that we've got to move beyond the fact of particular high-risk vendors have been banned and say what's next. And essentially what they're trying to do with this uh, report, which is uh, basically uh, some policies that they're suggesting, is set up a framework for the next five to eight years on what the 5G ecosystem may look like uh, in Australia and what the government can do to actually facilitate that. And it was quite interesting because if you look at some of the proposals, uh, some of them could actually start putting a little bit more of the risk uh, onto the carriers. And in addition... Uh, you're going to see potentially that uh, policies that will help operators uh, or encourage operators to move to multiple vendors as opposed to the usual model of the single vendor that we have at the moment. Now, I understand that um, one of the uh, suggestions they had was the promotion of Open RAN. Can you, can you tell us a bit more about their ideas there and what Open RAN actually is? Yeah, so essentially what they're looking at with uh, Open RAN uh, is the fact that it's a new platform which is very much like open source, uh, but essentially the radio access network can have multiple vendors using standard interfaces that will actually interoperate. Now, the, the, the key thing here is the fact that the Open RAN ecosystem, if you like, is not fully formed yet, but uh, if you look at the moment now, uh, we have two big players. We have the operators wanting it. Uh, you look at the announcement at the end of last week between uh, Rakuten and Telefonica, and which that's going to lead to Telefonica saying they'll have 50% of their... Uh, ran uh, as open ran by 2025. We've got Vodafone Group doing the same thing across uh, most of Europe in their footprint, already putting uh, and trialling uh, in some uh, countries that they're actually doing. And now we have governments, including uh, the US government, 
the UK government and the Australian government pushing Open RAN. So why is ASPE um, listened to in this space? Why, why is what they have to say here significant? So ASPE, of course, are a key protagonist in the 5G NATSEC debate. And so you can imagine that their ideas are going to be pretty influential with poly policymakers here in Australia and also across Five Eyes. And interestingly, also at the end of last week, uh, we noticed that in the UK, uh, it was reported that uh, the UK government is sending up, uh, setting up a vendor diversity task force with uh, my old boss, uh, the CEO, uh, ex-CEO of BT, uh, Ian Livingstone's going to head that. And essentially, uh, this group is going to be watching... Uh, what vendors are going to be encouraging a multiple vendor environment. And this is one of the key uh, recommendations that uh, ASPE was recommending in its paper as well. Okay, now on a related note, uh, there have been some very interesting developments in the 60 gigahertz space in this past week. There has, and uh, with 60 gig is an interesting one because uh, it's essentially Wi-Fi, uh, 802. 2.11ay and um, it's uh, been around a little while but there's renewed interest in it and its potential applications and Cambium Networks have just released their suite and uh, interestingly that is the technology that Facebook's Terragraph is using around the world as it looks to deploy in uh, multiple countries as well so it's, it's, it's going to be quite an interesting uh, technology but it does have pros and cons. Now, um, you had a chat with NBN about what they think about 60 gigahertz. Uh, what do they have to say? Yeah, so I spoke to uh, Sam Stevens, and it, it, it was interesting because, you know, he pointed out the fact that uh, although we've seen some pretty good uh, deployments in the UK, uh, because the fact these are in places like central London, uh, you can actually... Uh, put a network and it can work quite well because you can set up a mesh. 60 gig doesn't have very big range. You're probably looking at sweet spot of a couple of hundred metres, uh, absolute maximum a kilometre, and you've got to do quite a lot of um, finagling in the background there uh, to make that happen. And uh, the key thing with that as well is it's a line of sight technology. So if you can imagine, uh, as Sam suggested in Australia, when you move that technology out into the suburbs, you have essentially the issue of trees and uh, that's coupled with the fact that uh, MBN doesn't own the poles so they can't put the power necessarily without doing deals with energy. So suddenly the economic model's not necessarily going to work for them. That was the week that was. Thanks, Simon. Cheers, Graham. Comms Day Live, uh, we've got Russ Medelich, the CEO of RTI, on the line from California. How are you, Russ? I'm doing great, Graham. How are you? I'm good. Whereabouts are you in California? Well, right now I'm south of uh, Los Angeles Airport, about 15 uh, kilometers at our cable station in Hermosa Beach. Okay. And uh, how are the fires affecting you there? Are they new to your location? Uh, well, the fires are absolute madness. Up where I live in uh, Napa, they're, they're under control, and down here in Southern California, they have—they're uh, getting under control. So, uh, yeah, thanks for the good wishes, and also to all the people in Australia who wished us well. Uh, it's been an unusual four or five years, and we've managed to uh, to escape anything really devastating. So, at the end of the day, I'm just grateful. Okay. Um, now we're here to talk about RTI. Um, 
you're not quite a household name yet in Australia, but perhaps you ought to be because you've been doing some pretty amazing things across the Pacific in, in direct support of Australia's internet infrastructure and our connections to the rest of the world. Can you tell us a bit about what RTI has done and, and a bit more about your network? Yeah, very happy to do that. Uh, and again, thanks for having me on. So uh, what, are, what is RTI? RTI is uh, number one in the, in the number two markets using Guam as a hub. And what, what does that mean? Number one in the number two markets, uh, these days, any company of any size needs at least one protect path. The, the bigger the company, the more protect paths. Uh, most companies these days uh, that are enterprise level or OTTs need five or six or seven. They need protection on every possible route between two given points. So that's, uh, and we're not the shortest route to the U.S. We never claim to be. And we're not the shortest path between Japan and the U.S. But uh, we do use Guam as a hub. And why Guam? Well, Guam is important as a hub for several reasons. There really are three that, uh, that sum it all up. First, geographically perfect. I like to call Guam geographically perfect. It's right there, right in the middle of uh, Asia, north, south, east, and west. Get me to Japan, uh, mainland China, and then also Australia. Uh, that's the first reason. The second is, is uh, geopolitically, it's neutral. Uh, you know, of course, it's a U.S. protectorate. But uh, and then the third is there is rule of law, right? So having a data center or having assets in a foreign country is always a challenge. You know, we know that from uh, what's happening these days. And uh, being there on Guam provides the stability because the infrastructure is in place and the rule of law is in place. So the other component of why it's important to be number one, the number uh, two market because using Guam as a hub is because Almost uh, all of the cables built these days are point A to point B. They're point to point cables. When there's a cut, the cable is useless. Uh, so what we've done is we've connecting uh, many of our cables through Guam, and that way, if one cable goes down, the other paths are available to be monetized. So we're we're uh, also using Guam as a hub to uh, bring a lot more efficiency to uh, cables. And there are three billion dollars of cables that are already on Guam. Most of them are ten years old but they can be monetized now because they've got other options to go a different direction. Uh, so a long answer to a very short question, but it deserves a good answer. Okay. Now, you're, you're best known in Australia for um, the JGA South Cable that connects not just into Sydney, but also the Sunshine Coast. And I, I guess there's hmm. been a lot of interest in, in how that proceeded because it's unusual in the Australian context to land outside of a major economic hub. Um, there were a lot of... Um, uh, I guess high expectations uh, placed on, on what that might do for the Sunshine Coast region and for Queensland generally. Uh, have they come to pass? Well, first of all, the uh, Sunshine Coast is an amazing place to land a cable. It was incredibly complicated to get it done. Um, and why did we do it? Uh, not just because it was impossible, we were told not to, uh, which is uh, so we rose to the occasion. But every cable ever built that's coming to uh, Sydney. Uh, coming to the uh, east coast of Australia, it comes into the Sydney zone. There's only there are no exceptions for fiber optic cables. Uh, outside of the Sydney zone, there's just our cable that lands in Maroochydore. So our cable to Maroochydore, it does what? Well, first of all, we know that uh, force majeure weather event, uh, also uh, security for countries. There has to be a protect path, and almost all of the terrestrial cable between Queensland and uh, and New South Wales goes through uh, just a very select few routes. The bushfires from two years ago, last year, uh, uh, had they come further east, they would have taken out all communication. Uh, so that would be a huge security nightmare for and, and uh, for the for the entire country. 
So what we've done is we've provided a direct connection between Guam and uh, and Sunshine Coast, and then also a connection from the Sunshine Coast uh, to Sydney. So that allows for protection of capacity uh, for not just uh, things that are important for the state, but things that are important for businesses. For businesses, it allows for the shortest path to Hong Kong, the shortest path to Tokyo, shortest path to Guam, of course, uh, but but incredible diversity. Now, uh, it will take some time. Uh, but before I talk about some of the challenges that are facing Sunshine Coast and that cable, let's talk about how great the people of the Sunshine Coast Council are. The leadership of the mayor, Mayor Jameson, and Greg Laverde and the team there has been incredible because uh, for them to uh, take the punt, as, uh, as you like to say, and, and, and uh, quote-unquote gamble with the cable, they're looking at cables the way they should be looking at it, as infrastructure, right? They're looking at it like an airport. Uh, and what do airports do? They generate revenue. What do cables do? They generate revenue. Do they get uh, all these returns immediately? Absolutely not. It takes time. And, and they will need to put, uh, and they're working on it, some dark fiber between uh, between Maruchador and Brisbane, and then that will allow a complete ring. So will they realize the benefits, the economic benefits that the mayor has put out there, along with Greg and Paul Martins? Absolutely. Will it take some time to do that? Absolutely. It's not a it's not a quick process when you're getting infrastructure done. Uh, so uh, we do like um, like the fact that we're the only cable to have ever done that. When you think about the bigger implications, the broader implications, it makes complete sense to have cables come down from Indigo, Singapore and Indigo, uh, come into Perth and then transit across uh, and go out uh, from Maruchador. Uh, so that way you've got a perfect ring around Australia from the northern part. It, it's not necessary to go to New South Wales which is really important. And then again, now, if you uh, if you think about other opportunities for Maruchador, uh, it makes a lot of sense at some point in time uh, for uh, for really an exchange to be built there or for businesses to move in and to have their traffic because it's closer to the edge of the network for where they're doing business. Uh, but that will, again, that takes time. My I, If I were to put a time frame on it, I would say it's going to take a good three to six years, three to seven years for uh, big data centers to come there for the dark fiber to be put in place. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, they've got their first customer in the uh, data center. I'm happy to report it happens to be an RTI customer. And we've got about three more uh, under a contract that we'll be making announcements on soon. Okay. Uh, fantastic news there. Um, now, you just mentioned Northern Australia. Um, and, of course, you're also developing another cable right now called IBC, um, ostensibly <clears throat> connecting Singapore and Indonesia to the U.S., but there's a possibility that it uh, may also land in Darwin. So can you tell us about the um, the plan there and the progress on that cable? Well, the uh, the opportunity came about through absolute misery, Graham. And what, let me tell you what uh, what I mean by that. We had been uh, partnering with another cable, and there are four uh, four or five cables that are intending to build from Singapore uh, either to Guam or through that space, uh, essentially avoiding the South China Sea and disputed waters and going directly to the West Coast of the U.S. And so we were working with a, um, a you know, one of the industries best and brightest, and it was taking so long uh, that uh, we decided to, to do it on our own. And as we contemplated that, we were overwhelmed, just really astounded by the amount of interest. Uh, and so we'll make some big announcements. Now, I was very frank with, uh, with uh, the press on my post is we don't have this fund. It is not funded, and, uh, you know, we're not guaranteeing that we're going to bring it into force. However, we have some ideas on how it can get funded. Taking it to Guam isn't enough, so we're going to take it all the way from IBC, from Singapore to Guam with a branch towards Darwin, and then from Guam to 
the west coast of California, west coast of the U.S., we will uh, connect it to our success cable that's pending. So we plan on building both at the same time, roughly uh, about uh, $435, about $500 million of, uh, of a single infrastructure build. But this time, it's not going to be the club consortium cable, which we've been uh, breaking that monopoly and that approach for many years now. It will be down to the 10G level. Uh, and and I, you know, I like to compare it to how the Tesla model is run. I think there's thirty billion dollars of pre-sales on the on the Cybertruck, and uh, and you know companies can get uh, or individuals can get their money back if they put a deposit down, and that's precisely what we're what will be uh, that's how we're going to approach IBC. So IBC will be at the 10G level. Companies can take an option, uh, and we don't have the balance sheet to back that amount of demand. But there are very big banks, household names that we're talking with. We'll select one in the next three to six months uh, and and uh, for a cost of perhaps under 50,000, we haven't done the, uh, all of the math yet, but somewhere between 40 and 50,000 for a 10G for, for 25 years and, and somewhere around 300,000 for a 100G for 25 years. Companies, enterprises, individual, small businesses can option out for a thousand dollars. And, uh, you know, they're not committed. They can get refunded at any time. So, we think that's a way to level the playing field. We think that's a way for the club cables to stop blocking uh, business because what has happened uh, when there's limited connectivity, it's not as if uh, it's just the effects, the internet itself and the quality of the content. What happens when content gets blocked or there's minimal access to content is it crushes innovation. So allowing options and bringing more capacity, what that does, and that's why we love our job so much, is it accelerates innovation. So I, I look at the folks at Queensland, and I will tell you that, that those are some amazing folks. When I meet the business people, the people in telecom, they are all super committed uh, to their craft. And so I was joking around with one of these, uh, one of these uh, what do you call it, uh, one of these groups on social networks the other day in Queensland. I said, hey, you know, Queensland's all about innovation. It's time to export it. And, uh, and that's how I see Queensland. You know, Queensland uh, in particular should be benefiting from the IBC cable because with uh, the Sunshine Coast branch and the Northern Territories and what uh, the, the gentlemen up there that, are look, that have the, uh, the tender out for the big data center, it's a great place. It is perfectly located. There are some strategic assets of your government and my government that are that, are, uh, that need that type of a data center investment. And by being able to exit uh, park data and have it get to where it's needed and be closer and secure and closer to exiting the country is, is huge. So I think that, you know, the, uh, the IBC cable with the branch to Darwin is, uh, I think, is essential to, um, uh, to uh, Australia. I think it really legitimizes what the Northern Territories wants to do with their data center because otherwise you've got a data center sitting there and waiting to get built up. I also think that uh, when you look at the benefits of coming from Singapore uh, to Guam to LA and with a branch to Darwin, the fastest path is, is uh, to the U S then should be through Darwin. And not only that, it will be, uh, we hope it could also be the first direct connection between Indonesia and Australia. You know, I've been building cables for a long time and clearly I love it because why else would you suffer this kind of pain, right? But uh, but when you build these cables, um, you know, I've always wondered why, you know, it always astounds me when countries are so close, really geographically, they're next to each other and don't have uh, a connection between them. It, it's it's more than just a, a cable connection. There's something there. So we hope that we can bring a connection between the two countries 
RTI has uh, already built a major cable with PT Telecom. We're very close to the uh, CEO. I know uh, Pak Rirek very well, and and he was one of the first investors, uh, you know, putting seventy million dollars into the CUS cable. And uh, and we hope that uh, that PT Telecom will participate in this cable. So yeah. just to wrap up on IBC, IBC is important. It's important for Australia. It's important for Singapore. But there is one thing that people don't mention, and you know, why are all these cables going uh, from Singapore to Guam? Well, you have roughly uh, three billion people, uh, you know, India, ASEAN, and mainland China, and there's only three paths to get to the U.S. West Coast content, where still much of the data is is uh, stored. So, from India and China, you can either go through the CMUE cables through the Middle East. Those cables uh, tend to have some challenges; they're very expensive. The other option is to go through Hong Kong and Singapore. If Hong Kong, you go through Japan first, and Singapore, you go through Australia. Um, so that's it. So the three paths are uh, Simbui 5, Japan, and Australia. Now, if somebody could have thought to build a landmass between, uh, have a landmass between, you know, Singapore and the United States, that would be fantastic. Oh, yeah, that's right, Guam. So there's Guam, and Guam plays a role. And then, so Australia will win big uh, with, uh, with, with this geopolitical issues and the, and what we see happening with cables being blocked in different countries, um, that traffic has to move somewhere. And the only way for it to move out is through Japan or through Australia. Okay. Now, um, I, I guess one of the interesting trends in subcables over the past few years is that um, they're becoming a, a lot cheaper to build and run. And that enables a whole lot of new business models, doesn't it? For, for example, uh, layer one on demand, <laughs> all sorts of things that were unimaginable you know, five, ten years ago. Can you tell us a little bit more about how RTI is leveraging that type of effect to create new services for end customers? Sure, would love to. Now, the the one thing about cables being uh, less of a cost to build, which is absolutely true. If I compare to, just to give you an idea of how much less, uh, when you look at Global Crossing around 2000 across the Atlantic, it was a uh, billion dollars for one terabit. And so now, uh, look at JGA North and South combined, 36 terabits for uh, for roughly for about call it 200 million. So for 70 or 80 percent, 70 percent less compared to 20 years ago, it's 40 times more capacity with much more upgradeability. So that's that's just amazing. So the economics are supremely better. However, the permits are almost impossible, and the reverse was true 20 years ago. So good luck getting permits. Just to get any permit uh, is is, exce- is exceptionally complicated. So. What we set out to do is we were always trying to automate because if you're not automating, you, you die. That's just the way it is. And so we were setting up to automate before COVID-19, this global pandemic. And, and uh, when um, that was becoming a reality, we accelerated. Uh, we accelerated uh, the automation, the development of automation. And we'll announce a product soon called uh, I8, Intelligent Automation. And, uh, and that will be essentially bandwidth uh, on demand. It be set up in 10 days. All done via website. No, uh, no contact with a human being. You can place the cross connect order. Everything from the NDA to selecting your custom network configuration uh, to signing the contract and having it delivered uh, no later than ten days. And guaranteed that that is uh, is amazing for for layer one services for layer two. But for layer one services, it's uh, it's very difficult. The one thing that's missing from all of these platform companies that have uh, these boxes in different places. That's all great. But there's one thing missing from all of those networks, and that is cost economics. Uh, so for RTI to enter that space and provide uh, the ability for 
for us to deliver uh, capacity within 10 days, uh, just depending upon where a customer wants to go is, is really amazing. And so we'll, you know, it, it will take some time. The market adoption is not going to be quick. You have people that are used to procuring a capacity in a certain manner. And, uh, but what we will do is we will provide uh, some guidance on how to put that together. It's a simple process. I call it 10, 10, 10, uh, you know, so 10 days, uh, uh, 10 day, well, I can't tell you what the other 10, two tens are. We'll tell that in the marketing message, but 10, 10, 10 is one zero, one zero, one zero, which is, uh, which we think will be catchy. But, but also the one advanced thing is I will give you is there's no term. It's a rolling 30 day contract. And so what that does is again, why, why do you have innovation that's stymied across Australia and across different nations? Because the contracts are overbearing. It takes six months to do a contract with your average, uh, cable owner. Uh, it takes, 10 days maximum with us. The, the contract terms are very easy. You know, we're not trying to, uh, we're a neutral provider, meaning we do business with everybody from every walk of life. We're not trying to block people to get onto our cable uh, like most club consortium cables do. So we believe that IA is not just important. It's not a whiz-bang product. Um, it's, it's, it's not a very sexy interface. You know, it is just a very, it's a workhorse, um, you know, type of, automated sign-on that can deliver capacity quickly, but at an exceptional cost. I will give you an indication of costs as we, uh, as we get close to rolling this out in the, next com- in the coming weeks, not months, not years, but weeks, and uh, it will be available for procurement uh, by the end of October. Okay, well, looking forward to that. Uh, we're out of time, Alas. Thanks very much for joining us today, Russ. Yep, thank you very much, Graham. I appreciate your time. We're speaking with Andrew Branson, who's the CEO of Tangerine Telecom in Melbourne. Welcome, Andrew. Hi, thanks, Graham. Thanks very much. Um, now, you announced a very exciting new product this week, a 1,000 gigabyte wireless broadband plan. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, a 1,000 gigabyte plan is certainly the first time we've offered it. Um, it's on the Optus 4G network. Um, so it's a data-only service that essentially you could put into, I suppose, any device that, that accepts the SIM. But um, we've got a couple of chosen devices that, that we recommend on the website. It complements our um, previous plans, which were 200 gig and 500 gig. I think it just shows that there, there certainly is demand for those bigger, bigger plans out there in the market uh, and lends itself to many different um, opportunities, I suppose. So... It could be a genuine NVN replacement. It could be someone that just wants a large data allowance at a holiday house. Uh, it could be somebody that, that, that's more mobile and, and, and takes it with them to different uh, different locations. So um, quite a few options. Um, it's, it's certainly got um, some media activity in the last few days. And uh, so far, I think the, uh, the feedback from the market is really positive. Now, some people are quite sceptical about wireless broadband when it's used for heavy-duty home broadband um, requirements. They say it's not fit for purpose, it will congest quickly, the speeds will slow, and so on and so on. What do you say to them? Yeah, look, I I mean, I think um, there's probably criticism of every different technology type for um, for these types of products, but I I, I think there's certainly a demand. Um, I think as technology and devices is getting better as well, uh, the actual hardware that's uh, that's improving, uh, and I think you know the proof is the proof is in the pudding really. And let's see see how well it sells and and, and see how how um, popular it is with customers and how happy they are to uh, continue using it. I mean, I think it 
it probably lends itself to a customer that can't necessarily get a good fixed wire connection at the moment. Um, and I think over time, we're going to see more and more people using mobile, um, especially with the rollout of 5G coming, coming so soon. So that suggests that you, you see it mainly being popular in areas where NBN uh, maybe has the longer loops for fiber to the node, fixed wireless, satellite, that type of area. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. I mean, our price point on, on the 1,000 gig plan is $89 uh, for the first six months, raising to $99 after that. I think if a customer can get a fixed wire connection, they are still going to choose to do that, A, because it's, it's, it's more cost-effective, and B, they can get truly unlimited data with us. I mean, we do that from um, from $49 for the first six months if they're on a on a, this 25 plan, um, raising up, obviously, as you go through the speed tiers. But, yeah, I still think if, if someone can get a, a strong, reliable fixed wire connection, they are still probably going to choose that given the price point and the, and the data um, inclusion. Okay, now tell us a bit more about Tangerine Telecom. I saw in your press material that you have 70,000 customers and 90 staff. Um, it's almost like you've come out of nowhere. So, so can you tell us a little bit about the history and, and how you've grown to the scale that you enjoy now? Yeah, so look, Tangerine has actually probably been around a little bit longer than, than you might know. Um, so we set Tangerine up in 2014 um, to focus purely on MBN. Uh, I think they, those were still relatively early days in, in the MBN world. Um, but we, we actually sold a previous telco in 2013, um, which allowed us to offload any of the old legacy telephony. So no longer having TSDN and, uh, you know, Telstra Copper phone lines and, and ADSL. And we really went about focusing on NBN and trying to automate as many processes as possible uh, because it is, a, it is a low margin product. Um, so I suppose we've had a few years to really focus on getting all of those systems in place because the automation is different if a customer's on fiber to the premise compared to fiber to the node compared to HFC. And um, I think we've, we've really nailed that now. So the customer can sign up online um, and Sometimes they're active in just you know a couple of hours, depending on how how um, MBN is delivered to their property. Um, so look, yeah, this this year has been a very very big year for us as well. I think that obviously there's been such huge demand um, with COVID for home internet. You know, more children being homeschooled, more people working from home, more people wanting unlimited data. So I think our products really do lend themselves well to that. It's built on uh, no contract on any of the products, um, unlimited data on all of the MBN products as well. And we also offer a 14-day sort of risk-free trial that if a customer isn't happy in the first 14 days, they can cancel the service and we'll refund uh, the plan fee for those, those 14 days as well. So I think, yeah, we're definitely growing um, aggressively priced as well. So, you know, we're really trying to deliver um, you know, NBN to your everyday household at the cheapest possible price. And um, we're not having to protect those legacy margins that potentially the the, um, the larger carriers are. How do you connect to the NBN? Uh, are you doing it directly or do you use an aggregator? Uh, look, we use Vocus, who obviously connect into the 121 poise. Um, we would be, you know, large, Vocus's largest wholesale customer, Um yeah, we use both for the, the backbone for the obvious, for, uh, for the network connection, and then we obviously build our own plans, build our own experience, and so on, and service the customers ourselves. 
Okay, now you'd be aware of the, the big debate in the industry around the MBN CBC charge, basically a usage charge, which goes up and yep. up and up as more data is consumed. Um, what's your position on this debate and, and what, you, what would you like to see uh, happen with CVC in the future? Look, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a hot topic of debate. I think, you know, MBN has been kind in extending the, the CVC, um, the additional 40%, which has been undoubtedly has helped significantly throughout COVID. You know, demand for data usage has increased definitely. And I think if, if they were to remove that to the, to the uh, pre-COVID offering, um, there's, there's potentially problems in sight where either, you know, you're asking retail service providers to work on even lower margins or they're having to put prices up. And I think everyone wants to avoid having to put prices up, especially in, in, the, in the current market climate. Um, so that we would, we would like them to see that 40% become permanent uh, or, you know, as some other people have, have suggested, completely change the, change the model completely. Okay, and finally, um, 5G is obviously beginning to roll out and Optus is offering a home broadband product through its 5G, 5G footprint. As that footprint becomes more pervasive and it, you know, it gets to over half, three quarters of the population, do you think that's a product that Tangerine will sell and do you think it will be more than competitive against the NBN? Look, I do think it's, it's going to be a product that Tangerine will sell. Um, you know, with a strong broadband subscriber base, we we obviously want to have multiple different product streams available to the customer, depending on how they wish to connect. Um, I think, as he, as he said, at the moment, the, the percentage of the population could act, that could actually get a 5G service is very, very small uh, geographically. Um, but look, that's obviously going to increase over time. And I think as as that happens, the opportunity will, will increase. Um, from a tangerine standpoint, yeah, we want to be able to offer uh, wherever there's customer demand. Okay. Thank you very much for joining us today, Andrew. Great. Thanks very much, Graham. That's it for Comms Day Live this week. Communications Minister Paul Fletcher is set to appear at the National Press Club, and there is an expectation that he will announce more detail on the long-awaited news about the upgrade path for the MBN. We'll let you know all about it if he does in comms day. Until next time, goodbye.